Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 380 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, in the concluding part of a two-part interview, Lydia Sison speaks with Catherine O'Flynn about moving into fiction and ghostwriting, her enthusiasm for history and her ethical motivations, the role of luck in publishing, and the myths of writerly machismo. You can hear the first part of this interview in our preceding episode number 379. Hello, I'm Catherine O'Flynn, and today I'm talking to Lydia Sison. Lydia writes fiction and non-fiction on historical themes for readers of all ages, and is also a ghostwriter. Following English degrees at Oxford and Southampton Universities, and an early career as a BBC World Service radio producer, Lydia returned to academia to complete a PhD at Birkbeck University of London about Timbuktu in the European imagination. This led circuitously to her first published book, a biography of a notorious Enlightenment medical entrepreneur and fertility guru. Doctor of Love, Dr James Graham and His Celestial Bed, came out in 2008 and was reviewed in publications ranging from the Daily Record to the Journal of Medical History. Her three critically acclaimed young adult novels explore aspects of history neglected by the school curriculum. The Spanish Civil War, A World Between Us, published 2012, The 1871 Paris Commune, Liberty's Fire, published 2015, and Pacifism and Polish Pilots in the Battle of Britain, That Burning Summer, published 2013. Lydia's debut adult novel, Mr Peacock's Possessions, set on a tiny Pacific island in the late 19th century, is also inspired by true events, and it was a Times and a Sunday Times Book of the Year in 2018. Lydia was brought up in London and Botswana and now lives in Camberwell with her partner and varying numbers of their four children. I spoke to Lydia at her home in Camberwell. Just to go back a little bit, your first book, as you say, you got interested in this, uh, the story of James Graham and quackery and, and so on. And that was very successful. But then from there, you turned into fiction. What was that? What, what made you do that? OK, so you say that was very successful. <laughs> looks very successful most of the books were pulped ah right um i think success in writing is such a difficult thing to measure and particularly if you're the writer yeah and you know whatever whatever kind of version of success you are experiencing you'll always be hankering for the other version so you might get loads and loads of fantastic reviews in obscure historical or academic (laughs) journals or or whatever but it doesn't mean they're selling books Mm. Or, you know, you might get one prize, but, Mm. you know, yes. So it's a really difficult thing. And I think, I think it's the writer's lot always to feel a failure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I I think that that's true. And it's kind of battling with that, isn't it? And uh, so, yeah, so to you, it didn't seem like that book could have been a success or not the kind of, the the, the kind of, you know, success that you were interested in. Well, it just... It didn't feel a success because it just wasn't selling. Yeah. But then the other problem I had was I had, by that time, I had four small children. I simply couldn't get to the libraries. I used to sort of joke to myself about when I would read book jackets with biographies of other people about people who divided their time between, <laughs> you know, London and 
yeah Hawaii or whatever yeah. yeah and and I and I felt at that time I was dividing my time between the bottom of my road and the top of my road where my children's primary school was yeah. and where I was sort of picking up or delivering children three times a day yeah and so I was really limited in in when I could write and and what extra research I could do and so I started in fact I think it might even even be my daughter's suggestion so I started writing a, a novel that was basically used all the good bits that I hadn't been able to get into either my previous book or my PhD. Oh, what a good um, idea. So it was set in the 18th century, deeply unpopular time. <laughs> My first big mistake, but undaunted. <laughs> I pursued this novel set in, in 18th century Bath, which remains unpublished. Right. <laughs> but got me a really fantastic agent who's also very canny about where you should be, how you should publish your first book, and sort of convinced me that it could be my second book. And this other idea that I had was worth working on. And so I just went away and wrote another novel. Wow. I don't know how I managed to no, do no. that now. I don't, because, you know, you say, oh, you know, I have four young children and, you know, but writing a novel is not. So, you know, like you say that's as if that's just... So it was easy to write a novel rather than do some massive piece of historical <laughs> research. But most people would find the idea of, you know, just, I don't know, just sitting down and reading a newspaper article quite demanding with four young children, so... But you did it. Well, yeah, I, I think I'm driven by sort of guilt, terror and curiosity <laughs> in fairly equal measures, probably. Mm. And I, so I'm quite disciplined. I was doing other things, other kinds of writing to make money at the time. I mean, like sort of hilarious marketing things for a German food photography company. And oh, great. Sort of anything really that you know, in the usual way of writers, just sort of scrabbling around for yeah for whatever you can get somebody to pay you to do. Yeah. But I, yeah, I, I just really suddenly got into another whole area of research. When I was a radio producer, it was great. It was really fun because you had three weeks to start off with and then by the time the budgets came on towards the end of my radio career it was two weeks to make a, a to make a feature mm. and you could just immerse yourself in some topic for those two weeks and then you had to produce your 28 and a half minutes on it and so in a way I suppose my books feel very kind of luxurious because actually you've got a year or two to do that instead of just a few weeks and you can really dig much deeper into the into the topic and so the new topic that I was writing about was the Spanish Civil War, and mm-hmm. it was so interesting that I, you know, I couldn't not and, write it. And did you? Because I was going to ask you about how you how you alight on these subjects, because you know, you you cover very different sort of you know areas. Is it? You know, it sounds like it's a kind of an organic thing. It's either one person might lead to another, or you had some research left over that didn't get used up. So you thought, well, I'll make use of that in some other recipe. But then, like with the Spanish Civil War, was that just something you thought, well, I'm really fascinated by this, so I want to explore it? Or how, how do you alight on, on the things that, um, that, that turn out to be books? There's nearly always a kind of moment of recognition. Mm-hmm. And, and I think with the Spanish Civil War, it was reading Nancy Mitford with my daughter, and I remember reading Jessica Mitford as a teenager and talking to my grandmother about it. And in fact, she'd known Esmond Romilly because she was a communist and she was involved in recruitment for the international brigades. Okay. And then my grandfather had talked to me about the Battle of Cable Street, which had been a, a big moment where the British anti-fascists 
protested about her Mosley's march through the east end of London. Yeah. And my my daughter just told me that none of her friends knew anything about the Spanish Civil War. And for me as a teenager, it had been the most romantic thing in the world, the right. idea that that you could volunteer, run, you'd volunteer and, and you'd run yeah. away to Spain yeah. and you'd fight the fascists. And, yeah. you know, that was just so incredibly exciting and interesting and principled and moral and yeah and all these things and so it was really I I started writing it for teenagers because I just thought it was you know for the same reason that I'd written the 18th century novel for teenagers because I just thought it, this is so interesting mm. <laughs> you know yeah. why, why are they not why, why you might never come across it on this if at school yeah um, in the yeah. you know in the curriculum you know you they never study the 18th century no, no. And the Enlightenment, you know, for all its faults or flaws and complications and and so on, is so fundamental to how we think about the world now. And of course, I was also writing about Cable Street and anti-fascism at a time when the far right was absolutely on the rise in this country. Yeah, that so resonance. It, it, yeah. it had huge resonance. Yeah. And even even in terms of demonstrations, when I started writing it, I was thinking, gosh having spent a lot of my childhood going on demonstrations, you know, whether this was anti-nuclear or whatever, mm. a lot of anti-nuclear stuff. Yeah. There was, this was a generation that was growing up not really knowing what it's like to be on a demonstration, then suddenly they were all being kettled. Yes. That makes complete sense, that what drives, you know, what drew to these things was that they were underexplored or neglected areas of history, and it was almost this evangelical desire to share them with young people. But what, what's also remarkable is that often those, those areas that are underexplored or underexplored because publishers don't see them as particularly viable or they're not but how did that work for you because you know you obviously you, you found publishers and they got is it just that you're you managed to convince them with how you know passionate you were about them because that can be the struggle can't it for historical writers that often it's quite restrictive in what what they think there is an audience for and what there isn't I think that's true and I think I think so much about publishing and writing is about luck and about a kind of particular kind of alignment of the stars and I was I was really lucky that a really exciting new publisher was just starting I mean it was so starting that I went to an empty office to meet Sarah Dedener who was setting up hockey books and it had the kind of sprightliness of a small independent publisher, but with the backing of a big international one, which was Bonnier. Okay. And so that was a real bit of luck because basically, thanks to Sarah, I got four books commissioned pretty much on the trot. And so I was able to keep exploring and she shared my interest in these kind of yeah. hidden radical histories and the kind of passion involved in the politics of these events. Yeah. That's brilliant, isn't it? So yeah, I mean you're right, there is there is an element of luck in it, but that was perfect timing. I was going to go back to when you were talking about research earlier. You talk about how you're quite obsessive and will um become completely bogged down in tiny details that you know only three other people on the planet will, will know or or you know, catch up on. But also you've you've spoken as well about sort of guilt and anxiety being uh, driving forces and there's that thing that with, with research, that sense that you're just going down dead ends and cul-de-sacs and you're just wasting time. How do you, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you manage to keep yourself calm when you're spending days researching something that doesn't feel like it's going anywhere? Or how, 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 how do you manage to keep going in those circumstances? Well, I think it's changing. I think I'm getting 
I'm sort of getting both better and worse in that I really respond to a deadline. Right. That helps. Yeah. Um, and so as long as I'm under contract, I can make myself just keep writing when I need to. You know, I, I have this wonderful piece of software called Scrivener, which you can I, do I love Scrivener I love as well. Scrivener <laughs> because, it, because it kind of really, it, you, you can divide up, you know, you know you have X number of words, you know have, you have X number of days, you can literally work out how much you need to write on each day to get that crucial first draft in place. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that's the key thing is to to draft quickly and mm. revise slowly is definitely my my mantra and so that that really helps but i have to confess that you know in the last year 18 months i've i've sort of had both experiences so there's one book that i'm not under contract for that involves an unbelievable amount of research and also has been very difficult because of archives being shut and not being able to travel right and so that has got quite stymied and the way that i dealt with that is something I've learned very much from other writers which is just to keep trying to write something even if you're not actually writing the book so that you're you're constantly writing I I've learned that I'm just much happier when I'm writing and, I, and it actually makes me really miserable and depressed if if I'm not writing and so I started doing just even the tiniest bit of writing mm. and free writing and yeah. even writing poetry. Yeah. <laughs> she whispers it. <laughs> so that helps. But then in the middle of all that, I suddenly got this other job as a ghostwriter, which was incredibly tight timeline. Mm. Um, and I had to basically research and write a first draft in sort of three and a half months. Wow. And, and how did you find that? That's incredibly intense. I mean, what's, what's it like being a ghostwriter? I think it's a really interesting and quite underexplored area of it because you know it's it's you, know, you can't you can't really talk about too much but it's really interesting it's really interesting and um yeah I've been talking to a good friend who's a translator and we've been discussing you know the kind of parallels between yeah. translation and ghostwriting yeah. which I think you know and it's they don't entirely map onto each other um I was really lucky with this sort of first proper ghost job that that I've had because number one, I really liked the family I was working with. Yeah, um, they were really helpful and really open. And number two, I had a lot of control in a sense over the structure of it. And so the kind of it is a really interesting mixture of the kind of fiction writing and non-fiction writing in terms of how you develop a voice and how you inhabit a character. Except the character's real. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which is quite a strange thing, and they're you know, and they're there in front of you, and you can ask them questions. Um, that's mind blowingly weird, isn't it? So I, I, I really liked it, and I also there was something incredibly freeing about knowing that your job was getting the writing done, and once the writing was done, that was it. I don't have to do any publicity. I can go back to my other thing. That's true. Yes. Um, so that's quite nice as well. You get lots of feedback all the way along. People <laughs> telling you they like what you're doing. That's really helpful. You don't get that very much when you're writing. <laughs> no, no, exactly. I can see lots of um, benefits. I mean, I suppose one thing that occurs to me is that what they might think the story is, they might not have such... The, the, your subject might not always have the same sense of story as you do and what they might think are the really fascinating or the, or the arc of the narrative is not really... But did you have that at all? Were you think, oh, no, no, but that isn't, that isn't the crux of it. This was the bit that was really important or was it completely obvious what the... 
No, I think that I think that's re- that is really interesting. So the so the, the the main person had told their story in one particular way in a much shorter version, and had their sense of what the interesting things were. And to start off with, and um, she couldn't understand why I was asking her certain details mm. because she just thought nobody will be interested. And, and this was sort of stuff about early childhood and family relationships and things like that, and you know what made one sister different from another sister. Mm. Or, or whatever and and then gradually and what was what was really satisfying about about the process was it felt as though these stories these extra stories were coming out and that and that the whole family was getting access to a sort of idea of this person in their life that they had never really known to that extent before to that to you know that degree that that amount of detail yeah and so it sort of felt it felt like a really. I mean, it's such. It's such an interesting, and I can't talk. I can't say more than this. No, but it, it's. It was such an interesting and valuable and important story. Yeah, yeah. To be writing, and at a time that is really important as well, and and it also, for various reasons, did that thing that I'm interested in, which is connecting the past with the present. Mm-hmm. And I was I was really surprised. I didn't I didn't know how I would find it. I loved doing it during lockdown because there was absolutely nothing else to do, and I could be totally obsessive about it and legitimately just shut myself away yeah. and just work and work and work at it. Getting COVID in the middle wasn't great, but it was okay. I mean, what you were saying then about you, you know you like writing books that have something from history that's relevant to now and and I because I was going to ask you whether you can see despite all their diversity and you know varying themes if there was a common thread that ran through your work and I suppose from the outside it would seem to me there's obviously a concern with important issues and justice and I mean what what do you see as the sort of threads that would identify your work or do you or, or you, you know to what extent are you aware of that I think I'm really interested in in people with vision and people who want to change the world for different reasons. And, and I think that definitely, that goes mm. right back, you know, to the explorers who were trying to find Timbuktu right. and, and map the interior yeah. of Africa to people like the real person that Mr Peacock was based on who was trying to kind of create this little mini empire yeah. um, with his family in, in, in the middle of the Pacific. I think some of it comes from having been brought up in a family with a really s- strong ethic of public service. And so I talked earlier about, about guilt, and I think there's a sort of guilt about that, that being a writer is is not really doing much for the world. Is it mm. doing enough? Am I doing enough for the world? Am I, w- why am I not going out and changing it myself? Instead, I sit, sit and write about fictional people who did it, who were changing it or who attempted to change it. Yeah. But But I suppose I'm also... I'm also looking at the kind of flaws in their visions and why things didn't work out and, well, I guess failed utopias yeah. to some extent yeah. um, as well. But I, I, I just don't want these people to be forgotten. I want the things that drove them, even if they don't drive me or I can see with the kind of great perspective of hindsight, of course that was never going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, the, the the last the last few decades have been quite difficult ones for the world, and it's mm. quite it's quite hard to hang on to those kind of ideals and that sense of kind of moral purity that I think a lot of my characters are, are, are driven by. Yeah, 
you said earlier that you um, you try and keep on writing all the time, you know, even poetry, whatever, you just keep writing. And I, I mean, I'm guessing that as well your sort of time spent in radio was good practising that kind of generating ideas and, you know, it seems to me you're, you have a million things going on in terms of potential ideas and projects. I mean, is that... Do you have a clear idea of where you're going next? You know, do you think, right, well, next I'm going to do this and this, and I've got that one on the back burner, or, or how does it go for you? Are there sort of quite long gaps between big projects? Well, because of having all those contracts in a row, then there really wasn't time for gaps. But then I did have, I have had quite a big gap that was partly because of the death of my sister just, just before Mr Peacock's possessions came out, and that was very sudden and and quite traumatic and she died of a of a really aggressive horrible form of cancer not even in america um so that was that was actually that was really hard to manage and hard to come back to a big project also because she read all my stuff mm. so that was really hard knowing that i'd kind of lost the reader that i valued most and that was when i started thinking well I, I I must just write small things and if I can just write a few small things then I'll get to the point of being yeah. able to write something bigger but I'm I'm trying really hard to be a bit macabreish about my writing life mm-hmm. and just have faith I mean a year ago I had I practically had lost faith yeah and then you know this the ghostwriting right. job suddenly came at just yeah. the right moment and something nearly always does come up and so I have to just believe that if I if I show up that thing will show up too yeah 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 that's that, I think that's a really uh that's a very inspiring message actually you know if you show up something will show up for you that's uh that's a really nice uh and uh because it's I mean you wrote um you co-authored a piece with Helen Grant in the Guardian saying why writing doesn't have to be a lonely life which was a riposte to Tim Lott's slightly bleak description of the hardships of writing. And I think there are a lot of things, aren't there, about the hardships of writing. And sometimes we need those kind of slightly more, you know, while it's not, you know, it's not coal mining. Do you think there's a a tendency for writing somewhat to be um, rather sort of mythologised, perhaps particularly by a certain type of male writer? Or or what, what, what are your thoughts on that? I really do, and I think, and that whole idea of the kind of, you know, the genius monster writer, Mm. I think it is a really male thing, actually, because I think if women behaved like Hemingway or... Norman Mailer. You know, or Norman Mailer or Dylan Thomas, they wouldn't get away with it. They'd be appalling, especially if they left their children and, Mm. and all that kind of thing. And so there are so many double standards that make me really angry. But I also think that... Actually, I've had such great sucker from my writing colleagues. You know, I don't feel alone because I know that there are always other people who are going through the same processes as me. Yeah. And we talk about it a lot. And, you know, in the case of that, OK, it was a fairly it was a fairly glib article and it was also written because I needed the money <laughs> um, and it attracted some some vile sexist comments yes. but I think Helen and I both reacted very strongly to that sense that writers we're, we're, in, we're in it together we don't have to be competitive it's not all about beating somebody else at the prize it's not all about individual genius yeah and also there are about a million worse ways to make a pittance. Absolutely. Yeah. And so 
you know, I just don't think we've got a right to feel sorry for ourselves. No, no, I think, I think, I know I thought it was really refreshing, really, really refreshing. And yeah, you know, it's, it's, you, you don't want to say like, oh, it's, it's great, it's marvellous, it's easy. It's none of those things. But I think it's really important to say, yeah, that that established view of writing as, you know, this masculine, lonely, macho pursuit and you have to like abandon your family and, uh, it's just such um, rubbish, for want of a better word, and um, they sort of talk as if like no other, no one else. They're not involved in the literary world at all. There aren't, right? As you say, you know, writer, writers are a great support to each other, you know, and uh, it's a curious thing, really. So yes, well done for writing that article. I thought. <laughs> Thank you. That was Lydia Sison in conversation with Catherine O'Flynn. You can find out more about Lydia on her website at www.lydiasison.com And that concludes episode 379, which was recorded by Catherine O'Flynn and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 381, in Poetry Break, John Greening and Julia Copus discuss classic poems by Edward Thomas. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>